MI6 head of station's wife used to go out on a Sunday, taking her kids out, walking them through the park. One of them was a small child in a pram. And Oleg Penkovsky used to walk by just as if he was a casual walker. And he'd bend over the pram to admire the baby and drop in a box of sweets for the children, which, of course, was full of microfilm of all these various documents. And all of this intelligence comes together. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webcarter and I'm the editor and your host. And today's episode is on the real special relationship. Espionage between Britain and US spy agencies. My guest is Michael Smith, who's written a new book on the subject. And in our chat, he'll take us through the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Iran coup, the Falklands, as well as spies such as Penkovsky, who you heard about at the top there, and the big one, Kim Philby. Michael is an espionage historian and author of The Real Special Relationship, the true story of how the British and US secret services work together. Coming up on the pod, I've got Elizabeth I, great British commanders, saviours of the Holocaust. Tom Holland joins me for a chat on the Roman Empire. The film club moves on to Gallipoli next month after this month's Oppenheimer and plenty more great history to come. Please do share, subscribe and rate and review if you can. But in the meantime, I'll hand you over to me talking to Michael Smith and espionage. Michael Smith, welcome to the podcast. It's a great pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's great to be here, Ollie. I'm, I'm very grateful. No probs. Right. So uh, we're here to talk about your book, The Real Special Relationship, the true story of how the British and US secret services work together. And I've been reading through this. It's hugely enjoyable because each chapter is so fascinating. There's probably a book in each chapter, actually, isn't there? Yeah, maybe with the first four chapters, it's um, a book in two chapters because the first four chapters covering the war um, deal quite extensively with that. But yeah, it's um, it's a very, very expansive book. And the, I wanted to put together a book that told people how intelligence works. I don't know if you've read the Cuban Missile Crisis chapter. Yes. Yeah, I think that chapter works best in doing what I wanted to do in that you have the various strands of intelligence coming in. You know, you have US Air Force um, signals intercept operators based in West Germany picking up Soviet pilots in Czechoslovakia, training Cuban pilots. You have the GCHQ intercept post at Scarborough picking up all the Soviet merchant shipping that is on its way to Cuba with dubious manifests hiding the fact that it's carrying weaponry. And then you have signals intelligence from America around the island um, to the extent that they use this old Liberty ship and transform it into a signals intelligence collection. And that is sat off Cuba, sails around Cuba, listening to everything, and then sits off Cuba, picking up anything it can. You've got interrogation centre, debriefing centre for all the Cuban refugees who, of course, pour into Florida, in Miami, where they're interviewing people on what's going on in the island and picking up ideas that suggest something is happening in terms of building a number of 
air defence sites, and then you've got agents on the ground there who are reporting back to the CIA and even the British Embassy sending out people to observe what's going on. And all of that is coming in together, and it's not just a single intelligence source. And then, of course, you've got U-2 aircraft flying over, and all behind the scenes, you've got MI6 running this guy, Oleg Penkovsky, who's a missile expert himself, but whose mentor is the guy in charge of Soviet missiles. And he's producing loads and loads of handbook on Soviet missiles and intelligence on Soviet missiles for the MI6, which is the CIA was not allowed to operate in Moscow because the U.S. ambassador said no. So it was MI6 who were running him there. And... MI6 head of station's wife used to go out on a Sunday, taking her kids out, walking them through the park. One of them is a small child in a pram. And Oleg Penkovsky used to walk by just as if he was a casual walker. And he'd bend over the pram to admire the baby and drop in a box of sweets for the children, which, of course, was full of microfilm of all these various documents. And all of this intelligence comes together you know, initially, they're looking at these sites that are being built. And as I say, they're seeing air defense sites. And John McCone, the CIA and director, turns around because CIA is putting out a report that these are air defense sites. And he is on honeymoon. And he sends what's become known as the honeymoon cables because he's reading all this stuff while he's on honeymoon. I'm not sure what his wife thought of all that. He's reading all this stuff and he says, look, you're saying they're air defence sites. What are they there to defend? The sugar plantations? I don't think so. Something else is going in there. And of course he's right. And it's uh, medium range and intermediate range surface to surface missiles and the intermediate range can reach the whole of the, you, the United States right up to Vancouver. So Penkovsky's material is what's key, because when they start putting these air defence sites up, the Soviets had rigid ways of doing things. So if you had a medium-range surface-to-surface missile site, the air defence positions had to be somewhere exactly the same formation, and it was different for an intermediate range surface-to-surface missiles. So the CIA guys doing the photo imagery, looking at that, uh, interpreting the photographs from the U- U2, actually are able to say, right, the formation here means it's going to be... A- so Penkovsky's crucial here. Without him, they wouldn't have known. Prior to seeing the um, Penkovsky stuff, they hadn't the faintest idea what was going to go there. Now they know before the um, surface-to-surface missiles are even there... They know precisely what they are because, or what they're going to be because of the documents supplied by Penkovsky. So you have all of this intelligence coming in, and all of it is going to the White House Situation Room and to Kennedy and to his advisors, and that's really absolutely key to the whole thing. And then he's writing to Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, saying you've got to withdraw these. Bobby Kennedy is talking to the Soviet ambassador subsequently after the first letter to Khrushchev, trying to find a way out. The Soviet ambassador is trying to find a way out. Bobby Kennedy plays hardball. He was misled himself, wasn't he, by by the Soviet leadership? Yeah. 
and um, they're trying to work out what's the best way to go forward. And then you have the BBC monitoring service, which is listening in to what's going on on Moscow Radio. And the first letter is read out on Moscow Radio and at the BBC monitoring service at Caversham Park in Reading, north of Reading. There is an office of the CIA's equivalent of the BBC monitoring service, which is the Foreign Broadcast Information Service. It was originally called the Foreign Broadcast Intelligence Service. The Foreign Broadcast Information Service is on the first floor of um, BBC at Caversham Park. So BBC Russian monitors are listening in, and bear in mind they do this normally to get the news, but they're also producing it for British intelligence. They're listening to Moscow Radio. They're translating what Khrushchev's letter says as as it goes along, and they do it in. They're doing it because it's such an important thing and so urgent. They're doing it in sentences. So one monitor to do one sentence, and type that up while the other next monitor is doing another sentence and each of these strips are being sent off up to the FBIS office in on the first floor and being sent off immediately to the White House situation room so that it's being where it's being teared off torn off the teleprinters this is all before computers of course before email torn off the teleprinters and read by Kennedy and and so it goes on that week and then there is this final letter where Khrushchev says he doesn't say it in these terms of course but it's okay I'm giving it yep they're all going back they're all being withdrawn and the crisis is over and exactly the same thing is happening at BBC monitoring service and so you've got all of these different strands of intelligence from you know from GCHQ staff from the US military intelligence staff, the U2s, the agents run by the CIA, and open source intelligence, which everyone talks about now as if it's brand new, from the BBC monitoring service. So I just wanted to get across how intelligence works in something like that, that it coming in from all areas and you know, each bit is making its own contribution and each part of the alliance is making its own contributions. So the British are just important, if if not more important in some ways. Obviously, U2 intelligence is critical, but so too is Penkovsky's. But all of the other strands are also important. And I just wanted to get that across and how when you have that sort of intelligence um, and how much of it there is, whether you were Kennedy or Macmillan, you're getting the same intelligence. And it's interesting that Eisenhower, who had worked with Macmillan during the Second World War, Macmillan was British minister in North Africa during the Second World War. And of course, during Operation Torch, when you have the Allied invasion of North Africa, Eisenhower is there working alongside Macmillan. They were great friends. And in the wake of the Suez crisis, when Eden resigns, Macmillan takes over. Macmillan and Eisenhower do a great job of rebuilding the relationship really do really stick it back together again. And there is um, a summit in Bermuda. And at the end of it, the statement on the summit says various nice things about the special relationship and such like. But the key thing isn't in there because it's a secret COSIL. And that is leaked out to the New York Times. And it is about building up the intelligence relationship even further 
to ensure that it's producing just exactly the same sort of intelligence that was produced by the British and Americans in great part because of what was happening at Bletchley Park, where the Americans were also working together with the British, to to that level that it was in the wartime when Eisenhower was receiving all that intelligence. As Kennedy comes in, Eisenhower briefs him, A, on Macmillan and what a great man he is and how great he had found him as um, a sounding board for anything that he wanted to discuss and on the importance of British intelligence to American intelligence and that cooperation. And that's leaked out to the New York Times. I don't know whether officially or whether, you know, just good journalism by the New York Times, but you know, it, it is one of the key things that happens in the, the Cuban Missile Crisis that in the British press were saying, oh, you know, this is the end of the special relationship. Kennedy doesn't care about us. He's going to blow the world apart. He's not even talking to Macmillan. Actually, he was talking to Macmillan every evening. He was briefing him on what was going on, and he was picking his brains as to what he should do and getting encouragement from him. Yeah, I, I was always quite surprised by the extent to which the two discussed, yeah, as you say, virtually every evening of the of the crisis, which comes across now in accounts we see, we see more. I guess the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you as you write in the book, is almost the perfect example of the cooperation between the UK and US from intelligence all the way up to the political leadership. Yes, yeah, no, I I, I think it's a very interesting, you know, I mean, I, I would say that as an author, wouldn't I? Um, I'm not dissing any of the other chapters, they're all... Um, I well, we're going to get on to those because I'm very interested in where it doesn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I, but I, I, I do think that is a classic example of the Cuban Missile Crisis of how intelligence and policymakers, you know, it all feeds in to the intelligence organisations and then feeds up to the policymakers. It's, it is um, really quite amazing. A running theme throughout the book, which I. Sp- suppose as a running theme throughout the relationship is the CIA was only created I think was it 47 yeah um coming out of the OSS which I guess had been disbanded after the war just before the end of the war actually wasn't it yeah um, um but but there was sort of it continued in, in in a couple of different forms you know there were a couple of different interim operations which were doing the same thing and which fed into the CIA so you have people who were in OSS still doing intelligence in this independent organization that's got had a couple of names, then it becomes the CIA. That's down to mistrust, A, amongst the American people themselves, of a spy operation. We had that in Britain as well. And distrust of, of the military and jealousy, basically, of another organization collecting intelligence. But um, eventually the CIA does come for it. MI6 and the CIA went very, very tightly together, just not as closely as NSA and GCHQ, because if you go to Fort Meade, the US NSA's headquarters, you will see people sat there working and it's not until they open their mouths that you realize actually he's he's british or she's british and same thing with gchq you know there are americans working there closely doing you know part of the same team doing the same work it's a very tight relationship relationship between 
MI6 and CIA is much more pragmatic. Um, at the higher levels, they they exchange intelligence, they talk to each other, they coordinate operations together, like they did with the Penkovsky operation. They coordinate the operations in station in foreign capitals. Some MI6 officers and CIA officers work very closely together. Others don't. It's largely down to whether... You know, they get on, basically. It's all about trust between the two heads of station and whether they're able to um, think about the, the real point of what they're doing rather than you know their own personal differences. But um, by and large, um, it's useful for an MI6 officer to speak to the CIA and it's useful for the CIA officer to talk to the MI, to MI6 because you know, each side will have stuff that they're doing that the other side hasn't got and so you if you start exchanging um, conversations at that level building trust and it's all about relationships of trust if you start building trust at that level and getting to know each other um, you probably meet each other further down the line on your careers anyway but you are not missing stuff that the other guy is getting Um, And that's helpful in any situation. You don't want your bosses to be saying, hey, the CIA got a guy in Prague saying this and you haven't told me anything, you know. But that's, you know, a less less important aspect to it. The real importance is, of course, to get as much intelligence as you can and the best possible intelligence. Is it not fair to say that there was, because the MI6... I guess is a more older organization. I was about to say senior, but older organization. There's this attitude that reading through the, towards the end of the book, it seems to almost exist even to operations in Afghanistan that MI6 is the, is, it has more knowledge, more experience, and therefore uh, sort of gave off a kind of attitude, a, a slightly more superior attitude that obviously irked. Yeah, I, I, I think that was definitely, um, has definitely been a problem. Um, and in the past, not so much now, but in the past, it's tended to recruit from, you know, public school boys or, you know, women who've come from posh families. And you get that sort of attitude which understandably rubs Americans up the wrong way. Equally, on the other side, there is an assumption sometimes that the Brits are arrogant and actually don't know that much and their history anyway. You know, we're the new boys on the block. They're the old boys who no longer have it. And the other thing, the key thing, because 10% of the American population traces its history, its heritage to Ireland and is imbued over centuries with the idea of the potato famine and British brutality and many of them being brought up on those stories all their lives so they are anglophobic anyway. I spoke to one MI6 officer who said well you know look I've worked with a lot of these guys over the years and got on with lots of them in station but then there's one guy who was Irish uh, heritage and we just never got on. Um, it was, wasn't me. I was trying all the time to get on with him, but he was not interested in, in in helping or having any relationship of any kind because he hated me purely because I was English. Well, you mentioned so, Ireland, so I'm interested in that because was there much cooperation around IRA sort of gun running and, and raising funds 
in the US during the Troubles? Yeah, I don't really get into that. So it's not something that I've studied extensively. But yeah, obviously, FBI, MI5 coordination on that. And sometimes there would have been MI6 operations or something where you it uh, MI6 or CIA was able to provide stuff. I mean, that's one of the things would be Libya or which was supplying the IRA with weaponry and CIA might have had stuff on that. But the stuff in Boston in particular, which was the sort of heartland of that, where you um, still go into bars and see um, money boxes for um, Sinn Féin. And today the relationship's strong, isn't it? That relationship between MI6 and CIA, it's interesting that Bill Burns, the CIA director, was at Ditchley Park giving the annual Ditchley lecture this um, you know, this month. And he said, no relationship is stronger or more trusting than our alliance with Britain and SIS, IMI6. That's a point that my friend C, the head of MI6, and I have reinforced to our workforces in two unusual joint town hall discussions in recent months in Langley and in Vauxhall. So you know, Burns has gone to Vauxhall Cross, um, MI6 headquarters in Vauxhall Cross, and had a joint town hall discussion with Richard Moore, the chief C, to MI6 officers. And Richard Moore has gone to Langley, CIA headquarters in Langley in the States, and done the same thing in tandem with Bill Burns to CIA officers. And I think that's, that one sentence sorts of lays down, there is this close relationship and it hasn't changed. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, I, I just, it's something that people assume is not as strong as the British like to claim. But the um, reviews for this book in, you know, and saying how right it is and how you know, good it is on the special relationship include you know, four, um, three former CIA directors and two former NSA directors. So, and, and they're all saying really nice things. Mike Hayden, who is the only man to have headed up both the NSA and the CIA, he has written the forward to the US edition. They've kept John Scarlett's forward, which in is actually much more of an introduction anyway. I'm sure you've read it um, and and fascinating in its own right. You know, I sort of read for it. Oh, gosh, did I say all that? <laughs> you know, he's just... Well, he um, saved your job there well, as well, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he has. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, good grief. Publicity-wise, that was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. The relationships are very tight and they still exist. You, you mentioned the Cuban Missile Crisis in '62, but but going back sort of post-war up to '62, how much was that relationship harmed by the actions of the Cambridge spy ring, and in particular Kim Philby, who rose to a very senior level and actually was stationed in Washington? Well, it was harmed. I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, Philby more than any of the others. We've had atom spies ourselves. Um, and that did damage to the nuclear relationship, not so much because of presence, but because of Congress insisting that Brits should be denied access to secrets. But arguably, the worst spy we've seen, and the Americans have had quite a few of their own, 
Audrey Kames, for example, um, Hanson, who just died. But the worst one, arguably, was William Weisband, because when we come out of the Second World War and Bletchley Park, uh, the Americans at Bletchley Park are U.S. Army and U.S. Navy, because in those days, that's co-breaking organisations in the States. It's pre-NSA. When we come out of the Second World War, we're stopping, obviously, looking at German material, but we are then breaking into a large number of the Soviet military ciphers because it's the Cold War coming. We know that the next enemy is the Soviet Union. And we're breaking, the vast majority of the Soviet military ciphers are being broken by the British and the Americans. And William Weisband, who was originally from Ukraine, but which was part of the Soviet Union and had emigrated with his parents to America, is a... Soviet agent in place. So the cage he is run by the KGB, but he is inside the US Army co-breaking organization. He has widespread access to everything. And then there is this day, Black Friday in the late 40s, when everything just stops. All of the Soviet communications just start closing down. And when they come back up again, they're using completely different procedures and completely different ciphers and the only cipher that they are still using is the only machine cipher that the British and Americans hadn't used. So you know the Americans they had exact knowledge of everything we were doing and from that point on um, it takes about 20 years before you get anywhere near back in again to everything or as much I should say rather than everything and Signals intelligence is not like human spies. Human spies come and go. So you might have intelligence on this at one point from a human spy or a human agent, but um, or uh, on another thing at another time, you might suddenly get something new over here, but it's not continuity of everything all the time, whereas signals intelligence is coming in 24 hours a day. And so you have absolute continuity. If you've broken in to their systems and you understand the way they're operating, you have absolute continuity of intelligence gathering. And that, to lose that for 20 years, I think you, and that was Weisspan that did that, that is probably, in intelligence terms, the most damaging betrayal that we had. Philby. So yeah, more harmful he, than Philby, interesting. Oh, much more harmful than Philby. Blake was much more harmful than Philby. I mean, he destroyed all the British networks in East Germany. And a lot more people died. Um, People died as a result of Philby, but particularly people going in from Turkey into the Soviet Union. But um, by and large, Philby was reputational damage rather than actual intelligence damage. And at the time... There were people who were very angry about the British, but there were people in the CIA saying, well, look, you know, there are more important things than this. We need to keep this relationship t- tight. Yes, we can be angry about you know, the betrayal from Philby, but there are more important things and there will continue to be more important things. And it's interesting because I interviewed a senior CIA officer who was in charge of the black sites and stuff. And I asked him about, you know, the problems with the British because legally we couldn't get involved and we weren't involved with any of the black sites. We 
did get um, when you say black sites i assume you you're you're referring to is it things like enhanced interrogation techniques enhanced interrogation techniques at places like in poland in morocco in various places around the world yes we were involved in collecting intelligence in baghdad that airport uh, um, background in afghanistan and at guantanamo um but we were not involved in the black sites. And that was, you know, that was very definitely, you know, a thing that we would not get involved in and could not get involved in legally. And when intelligence started coming out about that in British courts, there was a lot of stuff about how this is going to be damaging to the relationship with the Americans. And that's not the media. That was the intelligence organisations arguing it, government arguing it in court. And so at that point, I said, well, what about CIA officers? Were they angry at all this? And he said, well, no, um, firstly, the British weren't involved. We didn't need the British to do anything on this. It wasn't their game, and we knew it wasn't their game, so we weren't going to get them involved. Secondly, yes, if you're, if you're a head station in Pakistan, perhaps, and you've produced intelligence from various things, and we're in Langley saying to him, well, do you think you should share this with the Brits there? And he says, why on earth would I do that? There was some of that. I'm not going to lie to you. It was quite a bit of that. But if you're in the senior position, if you're the top, if you're dealing with multiple things, you know that, yes, the Brits are not helping here, but they are doing an awful lot there. And that is just as important to us. Yes, we obsessed on the war in terror in the CIA, but... You, if you're at the top, dealing you know, at the senior levels, dealing with multiple things, or you know, you realise that there is more to the relationship than just one thing. After all, there's lots of things we don't contribute, and the Brits do contribute. So, I think you know, there was an understanding within the CIA, and I think that's why people like Bill Burns are saying, you know, it's as strong as before but it's also why you know they feel the need to have these town hall meetings to actually make that clear to every single cia officer and and, and mi6 officer that you know this is the way we want it we want a tight relationship that's very encouraging particularly with the war in ukraine just going back to one particular chapter in your book which i really enjoyed reading was the coup in iran and mm. I guess that wasn't the perfect example of both sides working together closely, but it was a close relationship. I mean, agents seem to have been switched between the two and and both the CIA and MI6 probably would claim credit for the, for the coup. But I wanted to just drill into this a little bit more. I know the CIA put a lot of resources into the overthrowing the, the Mossadda, the, the Iranian prime minister. Coincidentally, I think it was in the Qajar dynasty, a descendant in the Qajar dynasty. But is that CIA and MI6 take, claiming a bit too much credit for the, for the coup? Or was the coup down to their actions? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because, you know, credit or blame, it's always yes. dragged out and, and MI6 or CIA are maligned for it. I think, you know, the coup idea, obviously we were the ones having the problems, most problems with Mossadegh over because what became BP, the Anglo-Iranian oil company set up by the British um, to exploit Iranian oil, 
in a different era, obviously. And as historians, we have to respect that, we know. But yeah, it was exploitation. And Mossadegh was coming back and wanted to completely destroy the British part of it. And so no compromise was met. And he was he, he was a bit of a Machiavellian figure, I think it's fair to say. And it took the Americans a while to realise what a problem he was. The British did come up with the coup plan initially, um, but then the Americans also came up with coup plan. The coordination between them was interesting. We knew because we had a top agent inside the Iranian government that we were going to be expelled. And so we had to find a way of carrying out the coup or coordinating the coup internally um, at the time. And um, so the CIA were the obvious people to do that. And Kim Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt, known as Kim, was the man who was going to go in there and do that. He and his agents were not as good as our agents. And his main agents were almost certainly Iranian military intelligence agents um, who were working for the CIA as well. I'm not saying they weren't doing their job for the CIA, but the um, Iranian military intelligence wanted rid of Mossadegh. So, yeah, there's an element of Iranian military intelligence manipulating the stuff behind the scenes. And, of course, um, it's a retired general who's going to become prime minister in Mossadegh's place. MI6 has the guys who are going to be the most influential, the Rashidian brothers, who are these godfather-like figures who have control of the souk and and the, the market. Um, they have control over the corrupt elements of Iranian society, and they can call people out onto the streets in a way by you know, putting money in people's hands, basically. And so there is. They got heavy... that money from the Americans, did they? They got that from mostly from the Americans. Yeah, the Americans were ones putting the money into it. The plan is being coordinated between MI6 and CIA, initially in Beirut and then in London, being signed off in London and in Washington. It is largely an MI6 plan, but CIA come in. One of the guys is an ex-OSS military guy, very alpha male, who says, oh, we can't do this, we've got to do that. And it's a key part of the plan and that the British had devised. The British are coordinating it from Cyprus with a CIA guy there, but um, it's being done by, by, by MI6 from two different places. So the coordination place where the CIA guy is and the MI6 station. So the secret stuff, the secret from the CIA is going on in the MI6 station. You've got the CIA guy, who's very anglophile, to be honest, who really comes out after the thing and says, we couldn't have done this without the Brits. Brits, you know, we really have to keep tied to the Brits because they have done so fantastically on this. The operation goes down. And the thing that the OSS, ex-OSS, the CIA guy, who's the military side of the of the CIA, has said, we can't do that. We've got to do the other thing. The other thing doesn't work. And they only thing that will work is what Brits had prescribed before. So they have to switch to doing that. They have to get the Shah on board because he doesn't, he's scared stiff of Mustardek. Um, so they get his sister from the south of France, who's a 
dominant woman and MI6 officer and a CIA officer go to the south of France to get to Paris together and then south of France. And the MI6 officer says, my CIA friend was fancied the princess. So, you know, that was that was a bit of an issue. And so eventually she gets to back to Tehran and persuades the Shah to do it. I speak from experience. Sorry to interrupt you. I speak from experience here that there's no such thing as an ugly Iranian woman. And they do tend to be extremely strong-willed. I think that's fair to say. (laughs) Yeah. Well, sometimes the two go together, I think. So eventually it goes ahead. But the key thing is, the reason it goes ahead, there aren't MI6 guys on the streets with guns. There aren't CI, well, CI guys probably did have guns, but they're out, out on the street with guns. The reason it goes ahead is because the Rashidians get people out on the streets, and they use these athletes from the gymnasiums that um, are very popular in, they're like superstars in Iran, and they use those guys out on the street, and they're, they're, they're going down the street, and middle classes who are really worried about how the country is going are out on the street, the lower classes are out on the street, everyone is out, as this procession goes towards Mossadegh's hat, House, you know the um, everyone coming out on the street. The um, the police start pushing people about, and the military come out and start stopping them. And there's a split. You know, some military staying loyal, but most of the military going out on the streets as well. And you then have a firefight outside Mossadegh's house between the various people, and lots of civilians are killed. It is in many senses, a popular revolution. And yes, yes, MI6 and CI lit the spark. But by and large, it was the people, and certainly the Iranian military intelligence, as I say, who's the two agents who were CIA agents, were journalists, a film with journalists who were very good at propaganda and very important in terms of helping to get people out on the streets and spending out money. And you have a corrupt system where passing out money is very effective. So it was, yeah, the spark was lit by MI6 and CIA, but the people who were doing the revolution were all Iranians. So who's carried out this operation? Um, And then, of course, when it's all over, Eisenhower says, you're not going to let Churchill take any credit for this. He tells the CIA, um, you make sure he doesn't take credit. We did this. And um, the Americans, yeah, we get 50% of the oil. And the Americans split the other 50% out between themselves and the French and the Dutch. So BP comes out of that eventually with some, some assets come out of it. And the CIA goes back home and claims that they did it all which is typical of the CIA and my six relationship, basically. You often see stuff in the New York Times on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times. CIA managed this great coup. <laughs> and in London, people were thinking, oh, hold on a minute. Well, we yeah, I mean, if you fast forward to, to today or the last 20 years relationship with Iran, perhaps, you know, there is this assumption that the, the great evil the great satan is pulling the strings of everything that goes wrong in iran and yeah, yeah. can often be traced back to that coup 
Yes, um, and, and um, the great Satan, um, and also they've always had this history of believing that from the time of British oil explorations in in Iran during the Second World British occupation of Iran during the Second World War, anything that happens is in Iran. The British hand is somehow behind it, and of course we we've seen you know through the Iranian Revolution and other things the blame on the great Satan, as you say, so um, and, and burning US flags. So it's a very complex operation. I haven't really tried to portion blame in that chapter. I've just laid out the facts and let people decide for themselves. There are people who, who think we were dreadful during that operation. I'm not so sure that um, we were the criminals. We, we weren't doing the right thing in some ways, but equally, um, I think a lot of Iranian people were very pleased with the way it came out. Yes, I think Mossadegh often is presented as a cleaner figure than he maybe actually was in reality. Um, yeah. One other relationship I was reading about um, that I really enjoyed, uh, one other period of history post-war that was really interesting was that during the Falklands conflict, where I guess once it was clear that the Argentines had no interest in, in negotiated agreement, the, the Americans really went out of their way to help the British, when in fact, you know, the Falklands, we look at Operation Condor and how important the uh, relationship with certain rather questionable regimes in South America, it's very important to the Americans, their backyard. And Hmm. when it came to Argentina, they were, they went out of their way to help Britain against Argentina. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I think the majority within the administration recognised that they had to back Britain, but it took a while. And um, you have this meeting in the White House Situation Room, where the meeting of the National Security Council, where Gene Kirkpatrick, um, and it's three days after the um, invasion, and on the day of the invasion, to the consternation of many within the um, administration, including Bill Colby, the director of the CIA, Gene Kirkpatrick attends a dinner on the night of the invasion, a dinner at the Argentine embassy in her honour. And of course, she and State Department experts on Argentina and Latin America have been briefing the um, Argentinian regime that America would support them. And in this meeting in the White House Situation Room, three days after the invasion, Jean Kirkpatrick says, and lays down the law, and she was another very dominant woman, and she said that uh, we have to stop Britain. We have to get them to back down. We have to support Argentina here. And we have to tell Thatcher, Mrs. Thatcher, that she must back down, not the Argentinians. And Bobby Ray Inman, who had been NSA director, but was now, by now, deputy director of the CIA. He stood up at the end of the meeting and he said, I have to say now how wrong Gene Kirkpatrick is. And he had what was almost a rant about um, the importance of the special relationship, um, going through the various things, but pointing out how much we needed, the Americans needed the Brits particularly in terms of military backup and in, in within NATO and intelligence backup and how important that was because he knew, of course, because he'd been NSA director. How 
unusual is an intervention like that in a meeting in, in the sit room or in a, the equivalent? In, in yeah, a very angry intervention like that is unusual. And about a week later, and I said Kirkpatrick was a very domineering woman, a week later, Bobby Ray Inman resigned and he cited being tired with bureaucratic battles. So I, I don't think there's any doubt as to why he, he went. So he won the argument that she managed to get rid of him. It's noteworthy, and I, I say this in the book, that John Tiltman, who from the very first, he met the Americans when they arrived um, in Britain, four US codebreakers arrived in Britain to go to Bletchley Park, and that sets up the special relationship, and the Americans eventually come and work at Bletchley Park on Enigma and on all the other codes and ciphers. And it's a joint production of intelligence. And John Tiltman was the man who had met the Americans. And he, in 1980, two years before Falkland's invasion, um, Bobby Ray Inman, then NSA director, and Brian Tovey, then GCHQ director, attended a retirement party for Tiltman. He was born in the 19th century. So in, he'd actually been flown out to Washington in the wake of the Weissband betrayal. Remember the betrayal of all Soviet codes and ciphers. To help the Americans break the ciphers, he was a, he'd been a Soviet expert in the interwar period and had dealt a lot with Soviet ciphers and coordinated their breaking various points during the Second World War when supposedly weren't intercepting them, but were. 1954, he went back to the UK. He was flown out um, in the wake of the Weissman betrayal. 1954, he went back to the UK um, because he was 60. And as a civil servant, he supposedly resigned. But he stayed on for another 10 years. GCHQ said, you're so important, you've got to stay on. When he was 70, they said, well, you've got to resign. And then the NSA said, well, no, you're not going to resign because we want you. Well, you can resign the British, but you you, you come and work for us in our firefighting team because he was, as you know, a top code breaker, he was extremely good at getting into codes and ciphers other people couldn't get into. And they had a firefighting team. And one of the US Navy officers he'd worked with who'd met and taken to Bletchley Park when they arrived in 1941. Press Courier was there with him, and he was in the same team. And so you've got these relationships and these relationships of trust running through the whole thing. You've got people like Roy Jenkins, who goes on to be a prominent member of the Labour government, who worked at Bletchley Park. You've got people in the American administration who worked at Bletchley Park. And that, that whole thing with the Americans and the Brits who worked together, Bill Colby had been trained by Daphne Park, who later became a senior MI6 officer during the war. And they understood the importance of working with the British. And Bobby Raymond just knew that. And he knew all this stuff that had been going on since the Second World War. And that helped. Undoubtedly, you know, that intervention helped. I'm sure Mrs. Thatcher would have persuaded Ronald Reagan for more help, but it was a very dodgy period, if you remember. There was a lot of American attempts to make some mediation, which Mrs. Thatcher rightly said no, in my view. So so where's the re uh, relationship today? Because, I mean, we've mentioned there have been some failures in the last 20 years. The Obviously, the WMDs in Iraq 
and and we've talked about the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques in black sites where's the relationship today we've got this conflict in ukraine where one would hope the five eyes is fully in operation um, but is it as strong as ever, the UK and US relationship? It sounds like it from these town halls. Yeah, from what Bill Burns said, um, I think you can say that. Um, it's certainly true on NSA, GCHQ, as I say, you can't tell them apart. You you, you can't untangle them. Kissinger, quite, uh, who was actually a great fan of the special relationship, Kissinger um, did try to dot the intelligence exchange for 24 hours to teach us a lesson on a couple of occasions in the 1970s. And on both occasions, NSA said, yeah, sure, and didn't, because you know, they are so tightly bound together. And we do something somewhere, and the Americans do something somewhere else, and sharing it means that we can reach much further on the same amount of money than we could otherwise. And um, in the 70s, one of the key intelligence places for the Americans, as much as for us, was the British signals intelligence site, um, Ias Nikolaias on Cyprus, which was the main place for intercepting Arabic and Israeli military communications. That's where everything was happening there. And the Americans didn't have anything like that. In fact, they had to send boat once. Um, down there to actually try and intercept stuff. And it was a bit of a disaster when the Israelis mistook it for an Egyptian naval ship and, and attacked it. So stopping the intelligence relationship in the middle of the 1970s, with all the tensions going on with Fatah, PLO, PFLP, um, Israel and Egypt, Israel and Syria, Israel and Jordan, and indeed in Lebanon, as Lebanon fell apart, Stopping the intelligence relationship would have been a complete disaster, not for the British, but for the Americans. Yeah, teach himself so, a lesson. Yeah, they would have lost more than we would have lost. I speak to people all the time, including people with very knowledgeable, people who are in contact all the time with senior um, intelligence officers who say, yeah, well, it, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. We can't treat it. You, know, you can't assume it's going to keep going. You just can't. And that's obviously the driving force for Bill Burns and, and Richard Moore when they're having these these little talks with their um, with their own officers in tandem with each other to try and say, look, this is important. We've got to keep it going. Great stuff. This has been fascinating. I could talk to you about all sorts of stuff in here for hours and hours and hours. So it'd be great to get you back on at some point. But mate, this has been a real treat and fascinating insight into the relationship between the agencies thank you very much no it's great i love your website thank you thank you very much for listening plenty more great history to come as i said at the start so please share with your friends but until then thank you and good night